0: Welcome back to the resilient leadership learning from crisis podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, the executive director of the resilient shift. In a few seconds, you'll hear Peter Willis and me discuss insights on leadership during a crisis from our latest 12th round of weekly interviews with the same group of 12 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations involved in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Peter. I can't believe um, well, this is week twelve. I've lost count. Uh, nice to hear you, Seth. How are you? Good. I'm hanging in there. It's um, you know mid mid summer. Things are are cooking along here. We just have this small pesky thing, you know, called COVID nineteen that's still wreaking havoc on my country. Um, and as we were kind of tensions were easing here in New York as as our numbers continue to go down, the rest of the many parts of the rest of the the country here are having are breaking daily totals of of new cases, so really alarming what 's happening, and you know there just seems to be no end in sight to this it's kind of just this shock and disbelief that I have that that other states are continuing to make bad decisions and find themselves in a place that we did here in New York um, four months ago so it's it's pretty surreal
1: disheartening it 's interesting that Craig uh, in my conversation with him. Yesterday, so it was this week's conversation. He was saying that we were talking about this um, lengthening of the prospect of having to live with COVID, and how that's really landed now in the last week or two. People are really realizing all over the world that this is this is here to stay for a while, and with all sorts of implications. And he was saying it's moved from a from a shock to having become a stress. And I, I when he said that, I, I thought hmm, that's interesting. It feels slightly different from a a stress like poverty or lack of access to broadband or those kinds of things. It actually feels more to me like a, a fresh wave of shock. I think there was the initial sense of shock and everybody around the world sort of braced themselves, did what they felt they needed to do, and then assumed that we would get over it and start recovering. And to discover that our recovery is actually turning into another wave and possibly even more serious that to me feels like a fresh shock
0: yeah i would agree i like the way you're you're phrasing that and i wouldn't have necessarily thought about it but it's certainly feeling that way here now there's been lots of conversations in the news you know over the phone calls with family about hey this is you know going to be around to stay everybody i think notionally understands that but now you're seeing the reality of that so as an example everybody was like well you know what's going to happen to schools you know we're school you know in the fall isn't going to probably be the same it'll be different but how different and what does that look like and again we knew that notionally now what's happening is that school districts around the country are coming out much more specifically saying school will not be in session it'll only be learning Or schools are only going to do half sessions, or we're going to do one week on and one week off, like major departures from the normal. And it is, I think, it's presenting as a new shock. Like, oh my goodness, this isn't just notional. This is what it's going to look like, and it is highly disruptive. So I I think you're right. It is, it is another wave of a shock coming off of another wave, if you want to call it that, of of the pandemic, which seems to be quite strong. It's not uh, not abating.
1: Which makes me think there's a conversation to be had around the role of optimism and hope in a crisis. Because I think while everybody would have said during the last couple of months, um, yeah, I know there's the possibility of a second wave, we must be careful and so on. My guess is that behind that, there was the assumption that we could be optimistic and that actually we would get through it and so on. And to have that sort of um, subconscious hope um, that we would get over the hump and, and be clear dashed, is quite, I mean, there's a, there's anti-hope. Though. What's the opposite of hope? It's a despair starts to creep in, particularly for people who've lost their jobs and were hoping to get back up off their feet, or lost their businesses, et cetera.
0: I think it's a good point. Good friends of mine, um, Tom Karnak and, and Christiana Figueres they actually wrote a book based on, on optimism. They actually created a a company, an organization called global optimism, and they just wrote a book called the future we want. And it is literally talking about, in this case, climate change and the optimism that's required in order to to tackle this and address this. And it is this, at that underlying point, Peter, and I think it's directly analogous to to COVID-19 and the conversations we're having. But I'm also curious, you know, you mentioned Craig and a week conversation you had with him this week. Has there been other kind of reflections popping up from the participant conversations you've been having about kind of the, the endless nature of this?
1: Well, yes. Um, in fact, that's where I wanted to go first in our conversation, if you're up for it. But later on, I want to talk about uh, some discussions I've been having around transformation and really w- what, what we regard is transformative and what isn't quite transformative and so on. So there's some future-looking stuff which we'll get to, but I'd, I wanted to start with where we're at right now. And there's a bunch of very interesting um, observations. For example, the one that just came to mind as we were talking just now was from Mahesh in Pune in India, who was making the very interesting observation that people, both um, professionals like doctors and hospital management and so on, now several months into the pandemic know so much more about it. And there's a sense of competence so that when something happens, like a little outbreak breaks out, a, they don't overreact and lock down too many buildings or you know, too too large an area around the outbreak because they know roughly what the danger looks like, so they don't overcompensate. Uh, and secondly, inside the health system, they know much better how to distinguish between this is someone who needs um, sort of radical hospitalization and full treatment, and this is somebody who we can manage outside the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, he was noticing a sense of competence that's grown around both in amongst the authorities and out in the populace. So I think he was sort of indicating that that's brought a level of steadiness and calm. But I'm going to check in with him. I'm speaking to him tomorrow about whether this is actually translating into calm, given that the numbers are getting worse in India as in the States and here in South Africa.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that I like that example that you were just giving, in, but how, like, how competency can create confidence. And confidence is basically another version of trust and how important that is both in the medical community, but also in broader society. But then it's this interesting play too, because as we get more competent, we get more confident. And as we get more confident, dare I say, we get more complacent and, or this, you know, we've got this thing licked and it's not that really big of an issue. And that's right. When it comes back and bites you again, it's, it's, it's a really interesting conundrum. Yes,
1: and in a way, um, Piero in Milan, chief resilience officer there, was telling me that his real frustration is seeing people because he's been so acutely aware of how the, the sort of the lower half of the economy has been so battered by COVID that now that summer's come and everybody's relaxing and and so on, he's noticing that people are spending and he's, he wants to go up to them all and say you should be saving now because things are not over please save some of your money, which I thought was really kind of touching because he, he's he got a little more insight perhaps than the average citizen into the risks up ahead. But he's also, as we know from previous conversations, he's very Italian and he was, you know, you can't keep an Italian from summer.
0: No. And, and you know, similar, similar around the world, at least in Northern Hemisphere, you know, summertime. And, and this is happening. People are been stuck and stagnant for a while there's some you know insights or hope that you know we're looking this going back to the, the Mahesh's point and then you want to go out and celebrate the summer and and spend a little money because you haven't been and you've been holding on to things so tightly but it is it, i mean all indications are that this is only the precipice of what is going to be a pretty severe and very long economic crisis it is a little scary but then on the flip side of this which i find really complicated slash interesting peter is that most of our economic models are based on spending and consumption. So going back to post-World War II, right? The answer to this is to inject money into the economy so that people go out and spend money and spending money will help us recover. But this has also led to a practice of consumption over the last 40, 50 years that has not been good at all. So it's this weird position we're finding ourselves in yet again in terms of the change, a shift, Are we supposed to follow previous 20th century economic models and re, you know, stabilize our economies by going out and asking everybody to spend money or uh, and on what, you know, versus how we might need to think about this in a new 21st century model. So I think uh, I think Piero's I think Piero's right on. It's it's you want to see people kind of go back to normal, but you're also super worried about what that normal is going to look like in six more months
1: not on the consumption side but on the construction and infrastructure side of the economy fascinating insight from peter chamley in australia where he was saying that in his region there's australasia they're talking to some of their big public sector clients who are itching to get stimulus money released into into big infrastructure projects that have been on the stocks for for a while and there is a strong pressure from politicians to zoom in on what they call shovel ready projects which he has a bit of a problem with because they're the ones that are that were conceived in the past and therefore carry some of the baggage of the sort of past thinking and he's wanting them to to spend some of this money on new thinking that's relevant to the new situation we're all walking into but be that as it may he says that the thing that's really troubling him and his colleagues at the moment is that these public sector Clients are coming and saying, You know, that thing we were going to do next year, can we do it please this year and get it done by Christmas? And they're saying, Well, of course, but that means that our order book for next year empties out, which is a a potential problem. In in his words, he said, It seems stupid in an economic crisis to say that you've potentially got too much work and not enough bodies to do it because they're also at the same time letting people go.
0: Isn't it wild? It just seems like everywhere you turn, there's juxtapositions. We need to be fiscally risk careful and to, going back to Piero's point, what we were just discussing, we don't know what the economic crisis is going to be. So we need risk averse and, and make some redundancies. But then at the same time, and we're talking about Peter and Air, big engineering company, they're getting potentially slammed with turning their pipeline and projects over the next two years and bringing them forward for the next three months. But then what happens, You know, you double down on that and then there's no work in your backlog. I also think it's really interesting, the comment that you just made about the stimulus and you know the idea that we need shovel-ready projects and they're they've been designed on process and thinking in the past. So are they not fit for purpose? And I read this interesting article uh, in Time magazine over the weekend, and the uh, the author was was quoting. Uh, I can't I we can't can't recall the person now. Shame on me. But um, the the comment that was made is we've basically we've run out of time to build new projects in old ways. And it was such a simple way to say that and so elegant. But what strikes me to what you just said, Peter's insight, is that not only are we still doing new things in old ways, but this crisis and the stimulus that's going that to happen to rebound about us, is gonna, we're going to be doubling down on doing new projects in old ways. And the time to actually sort out what we need to do differently, we've just lost. And on top of that, the the money that's getting poured in, I think I I just saw a figure $11 trillion has already been poured in globally to help um, prop up the global economy in the last three months. And it's something that's of that same order of magnitude in the next six months. We're pouring all the available capital we have into this right now, which means, you know, three or four years from now, when we keep needing to evolve the way we're doing things and build infrastructure and resilience for future, you know, fit for future purpose. We're not going to have the money to do it because we're spending it now. So it's really putting all of these decisions right now into a pressure cooker. Um, and I don't know if everybody's realizing how really intense this next six months in decision-making is going to be.
1: Well, you're, you're rehearsing precisely the conversation that I've had repeatedly in different interesting variations with uh, Steve Hammer, because that is his profound concern that the, um, the bank's clients around the world Find themselves in a cleft stick because they have a population that rapidly and urgently wants the stimulus to go in to plug holes, and each hole is the same shape as it was years ago. Uh, And it used to be full, it's now empty. So please plug it with some of your new money. Whereas um, he and his colleagues in the bank are saying, okay, but can we not use this opportunity to invest slightly differently in ways that are going to be beneficial for all of us going down the next few years uh, in terms of climate and green recovery thinking yeah no, it's, it's usually complex and the clock ticks
0: indeed and, and on that topic i was curious you know uh if there has been more of that kind of insight from steve from your other participants in, in terms of you know we've talked about this before this business as usual but that doesn't exist anymore. But what is the new normal? And we've, you know, talked months ago even about the now normal, but how has that kind of evolved? Have you hearing other comments like Steve's pop up about what needs to happen moving forward and and how we are or not doing this?
1: I think um, we certainly, and this is I said that I wanted to to get onto this that, Oh, is this um, what
0: is this this is the topic y'all great that you wanted to cover?
1: Well, we can do, yeah, if you if you want to go there. Um the, I mean, for example. I got this sense that there's some very clear wins that some of my interviewees wanted their organization or their country to nail down and sort of capture it and not lose it. Uh, one of them from Adriana in Salvador in Brazil was this idea that she's just so thrilled with the way the state government and the city governments and municipalities have been actively collaborating particularly the mayor of Salvador with the state governor who belong to different political parties uh, and hitherto have never collaborated they're actually making joint statements making joint policy simplifying the protocols around what different range of businesses can and can't do as they unlock etc all of it aimed to make it easier for the people in the state and in the city within the state to comply and stay safe and gradually rebuild the economy. Now, to me, that is rational government behavior, but it's pretty unusual. And so she was hopeful that the the muscles they're developing, these collaborative cross-party muscles they're developing, would stay. And whether you call that a shift or a transformation, for me... Party politics is so badly in need of transformation that that I'm I'm willing that to be transformative, but it may not be quite as profound.
0: That that is great to see and great to hear, and and particularly with all the other political strife happening in Brazil. Actually, I think it's phenomenal to hear that that story.
1: I was surprised, given what we get in the media about Brazil, which is usually just bad news and um, absurd nationalism uh, at the wrong moments and so on. But then just one more thought about this, about something that, you know, is it a shift or is it a transformation? Um, Peter Chamley and I came down on the side that this is probably a significant shift, but not really transformative, but where he was talking about the commercial real estate world, which Arup, um, as an engineering consultancy, has a lot of work in that field, sort of the built environment, you could say. He's now convinced that this is, this is definitely going to be a very, very different landscape in the coming years as a result of what we've all been forced to do and have learned in the, the course of this pandemic and that's going to have a huge impact on his business and many other businesses around that but it's not really transformative in the sense that he doesn't think it's going to cause people to necessarily to move towards a radically more climate friendly approach or a radically more socially aware approach to the working in built environment. But I, I personally hold a little corner of hope there that we, this this story is definitely not over yet. And from what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, things could get much further down this road of breakdown and and change in the commercial real estate world. Uh, and who knows?
0: Pretty wild what's happening. And, and is there a transformation of what here? is is there a repositioning is there a shift i think these terms all sound the same but they don't actually mean the same thing and, and i think everybody's still right now trying to figure this out and the other thing that i find is really fascinating this example you just used about commercial real estate so is it r- commercial real estate that's changing and is it changing itself or is it reacting and in this case it maybe it's that technology that's been there all along, like, you know, Zoom, Skype, uh, webinars, et cetera, that we had all these things, but now they've been doubled down on. Bandwidth has been pushed. They, They have more money because everybody in the world is using it at the same time. Companies are now realizing that they can actually still get on work with people working remotely. So the technology kind of, had a transformation, but the technology was always there. It's the application that transformed. And then the use of technology is now impacting commercial real estate because now everybody's, you know, we need to be fiscally conservative. Actually, we don't need all this office space that we've had. We could probably do the half of it and we're not going to re- be re-signing our leases. So now they have to shift, but not because the commercial real estate market wanted to.
1: But I think that's isn't that always the case that um Profound change, particularly across a large group of people and organisations like a sector, never comes about through everybody getting around a a dinner table and saying, "Right, guys, shall we transform?" And I think this is this conversation is making me realise I'm not sure you and I haven't defined our terms yet around what is transformational. And and my first sort of card on the table in that regard would be that for me the difference between transformation in a crisis. So you have a crisis and you respond to the crisis and you survive the crisis. Is survival transformation? No. I would say transformation has to have an element of upward spiraling. When you reassemble the parts, you've got something of higher order value than you had before you went into the crisis.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I don't disagree on the first part of that definition, but maybe I have a slightly different take on the the latter part, which is I'm in the NGOs community in space, and people use this word transformation all the time. Philanthropy, business, innovation, NGOs, and more more than ever before. And I think it is, for the most part, in my opinion, Peter, 90% incorrectly used. Transformation is a radical thing. The example I use, which is a simple one, is a caterpillar and a butterfly. A caterpillar transforms into a butterfly, meaning it is no longer a caterpillar. A transformation is a radical change. You go from one state to another state. It is not gradual. it is not just an upward spot it is transformational. That's what that word means. It's not a shift. it's not a big change. it's transformation and I think we need to be using transformation much more sparingly because we are literally talking about the transformation of the As an example, another old, old example is transportation. You went from horse and buggy to automobile. That's a transformation. Would you agree?
1: I would. I I thank you. That's really helpful to put it in such. You've raised the bar, which I I think it's appropriate. The only thing that I would say in mitigation of those hordes of people who overuse the word in your experience is that they are unconsciously perhaps giving expression to a, um, a yearning. Anybody who is half awake today, it has to be yearning for a comprehensively better, more fit for purpose civilization and economy and society and so on than we have stumbled into over the last centuries. And so by talking about transformation, we possibly, perhaps foolishly, think that, that we can bring it closer. But I, I welcome the discipline of your definition. And I think your two examples are absolutely A fantastic benchmarks because you literally have a change of form in those cases. And that begs the question, I mean, it's a fascinating place to go, which we probably don't have time to do now, but what conceivably might transformation look and feel like coming out of this in some of the areas that we've been discussing and our participants um, dwell in?
0: I agree, but I love the way also you've just framed that too, Peter, right? I think that's that's a spot on, you know. And I also, you know, I am guilty of misusing the word transformation, but I think it's exactly for the reason you described. And I love that, you know, half be that half awake, but that desire to want to pull ourselves into a a more realized and holistic kind of future and, and awareness of ourselves and of each other and and of nature. So I, I I think you painted it very fairly and I think very accurately. But is there a way to also talk about transformation in terms of change agents in terms of not not the system itself that's changing but who's bringing about that change because i think some of the other things you've told me about peter is is this issue of grappling through this the course of this project with our participants trying to figure out does their approach need to change right you've brought up these elements about listening to staff bottom up managing looking at things more holistically being more flexible and in a way, it is a significant change in these participants—not just their sense of themselves, but of how they do things. And I think uh, so. In anything merging there, and and how are people or change agents coming into uh, their own in in this time of global crisis, which might then help enable some of these broader transformations that we need to see.
1: Well, I had this wonderful three-way conversation where I invited Tom Lewis from WSP to get on a call with Elaine Roberts at um, Lloyd's Register Group. So they ended up in, in such an interesting conversation about their sense that it is now, in, you know, they're both in the sort of, they put it in something of the last 10 to 15 years of their career, their professional career. And they say now more than ever, they realize that their role has to be to consciously go out and reach down amongst the younger generation, people in their late 20s, 30s, and both actively listen to them and include their perspectives um, much more often in their own assessment of what needs doing, but also to groom them, mentor them into much more rapidly and deliberately into positions of having a clear authoritative voice in decision-making within their organizations. And I thought that's, um, they were framing, you know, you you and I will have had these conversations over the years about sort of, yeah, we've got to bring in the youth. Yeah, but it's been kind of two-dimensional in my experience. But they were talking in a way that made me think, whoa, something's going to happen here. I have absolutely no doubt. I'm talking to Elaine just earlier today, um, she was saying that this is something she is already thinking very actively about how exactly she's going to do it. So that I found that quite, um, quite encouraging. It's, it's a dimension of leadership that I got the sense they were kind of dusting off something that's, that's there on the list of things that you should be doing as a leader, namely sort of bringing on the next generation. They were dusting it off and saying, no, 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 this actually gets to go much higher up the agenda.
0: Yeah. And I hope that's the, the case because I'm, you know, I think that 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 conversation is always there and kind of swirling around, but, you know, leaders got to that point in many cases from hacking it out, competing, and oftentimes people in, in positions of power are not interested in relinquishing it. And, you know, that that's often the case with some of the haves and the have-nots and the, the, the broadening margins of equality and equity across the world. But I do see that there does seem to be a little bit more of a general awareness and awakening than in, in previous years around this. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that is changing. But even going back to the issues of climate change again, it's just remarkable about, you know, there's this break between people like, I don't know, maybe 35 or younger, kind of the millennial generation and, and below versus those of us that came before. And there's just a radical difference in terms of their innate acceptance and the prioritization of climate change. It's just remarkable. And if less, we start making room for those people more quickly, we're in a lot of trouble. And I think to the point that you're saying of Elaine and Tom, they're they're right. We don't have the time any longer. We're at the 11th hour. We don't have the time to bring these younger professionals up through the process and the ranks as we've done traditionally, because we don't have that time. We need their insights, their passion, their motivation, and their understanding of the current world in positions of decision-making much sooner than otherwise would would allow. The other issue I'm thinking about all of this, and it's great that people like Elaine and Tom are thinking about this and thinking about how they devote their time to it. But I, I think the other problem is we've got to change our, the way things are being incentivized. We're not incentivizing people to share power or to share authority or to share wealth. We're incentivizing the opposite. So there's some social and, and corporate structures here that also need to be fundamentally changed in order to change how... This all happens.
1: Wow, that's a Hugh! What an interesting thought, and particularly I—I I, I like the way you threw in social as well as organizational and corporate uh, incentivization, because it strikes me that we're talking sort of—we're lumping together the the younger generation, you know, anything up to mid thirties or whatever. But actually, my sense, and from talking to one or two, my son and some of his generation. Is that um the the really that sort of the people in their 20s whose career is being really knocked sideways by COVID before it's even got going, they are in a way a different case because yes, they've got what you describe this sort of innate, no questions asked, compulsion to get the world shifted so that we can cope with the future and create a future for them that's currently sort of draining away. So there's that passion and urgent need. But they risk being large numbers of them being really left high and dry, and I think kind of rudderless. And that's I mean, this is a horrible generalisation, but this is I'm picking this up in various things I've read and people I've talked to. Whereas there are people in their sort of thirties and forties who actually have had a bit of a career and they've got some real skills to bring to to that sort of leadership stairway that we're talking about. And I think both of those age bands are going to need strategies from the older leadership.
0: It's such an interesting point, Peter. And and, um, I think you're totally right. The first time this really struck me was some work I'd done with an organization called Student Energy. And they're a network, I think of over 150,000 young professionals around the world. They started out out of Canada or in the Vancouver area. And the premise was simple. It was People were graduating from undergrad or graduate programs and wanting to get into the energy business, particularly clean renewable energy. And one, there weren't that many jobs there. And two, the, it was a new field and there weren't enough people to mentor them. I just hadn't thought about it before. And there's hundreds of thousands, right? There's 150,000 people in this voluntary organization around the world of these, this generation wanting to do this type of work and the jobs aren't there. But they don't have the mentorship. They don't have people to tell them how to do this, to do this, to do this, and get into that role. So they've created a peer-to-peer network to help each other, and it just totally blew my mind. And this has happened within like four or five years. Unbelievable!
1: That is an extraordinary story, and that really gives me hope. And at the same time, it it, it illustrates that it's in the nature of a real fundamental shift there. I call it a transformation. If you take the energy field from the fossil to the renewable, that there will, by definition, be way too few um, experienced people to open the door and hold the door open and welcome in the tides of new entrants that are going to be needed in order to run a renewable energy economy. And so how do you you sort of plan for that? Because this is, you know, it's got to be done
0: chop-chop. I totally agree. And it's it's one of the things that's most fascinating to be, you know. And we talk about, again, going back to this word transformation, how are we doing this? And we, we talk about how we need to decarbonize in this amount of time. And we need to ensure the, the resilience and, the, and adaptation measures are put in. And we keep talking about this, but who's going to do it? And when you talk about all the trillions of dollars, you're shifting the trillions conversation and all the investments that need to be made. And now you've got all this, you know, going back to our earlier part of the conversation, the stimulus around COVID and then the stimulus uh, funds, et cetera, and points Peter was making about needing people to do this now. We don't have this. And people keep talking about skills and we needed to upskill the global workforce and find jobs for them. But they often, what's interesting to me is they, these conversations usually sit around, how do we bring people forward? Right? So it's, People that are doing these jobs, these jobs like in the fossil fuel industry or coal mining are going to go away. How do we retrain them? But those conversations are usually around political purposes to try to get people into a new agenda, which is, you know, that's an important part of the conversation needs to happen. And we don't want to leave people behind in this new future transformation. Let's go back to that word again. But nobody is talking about the massive amount of education that we need to be providing to the younger generations around the world simultaneously and not just from an academic perspective but from a jobs and mentoring ship we need to have massive investments or all of the you could shift all the trillions you could align all the politics and you can have all the policy it doesn't matter if you don't have an educated and practiced workforce peter and nobody's talking about it
1: i'm right with you So this is a a sort of a a silent bottleneck that's has the potential to really flatten any attempt to, to actually transform this sector at the speed it needs to go.
0: But I, but I think we're seeing some helpful signals and it would be fun to maybe come back to you and talk more about this, but but, mm. but just, you know, the examples you've, you've given where you've, we've got people in leadership positions in big organizations like Tom and Elaine, realizing that they've got to make it their personal mandate and mission to engage more with the younger people, professionals in their organization and spend more of their time doing that. We've got these organizations like student energy popping up to help these communities of youth to help themselves essentially. And then at the same time, we've also got these really good signs and, and indicators that actually a change in the education system and technology around COVID might actually help. I saw this really fascinating interview with a dean of a, of a big university system uh, here in the U.S. and talking about, hey, you know, next semester is going to look significantly different. He was making the argument that the university system is kind of globally has been kind of fooling itself and like, we're going to be fine. We're going to transition. He was, he was predicting that the university system would, would be right up there with the commercial real estate and airline industry and being totally wiped out or really impacted by COVID. But he also said there was great hope because he was saying, you know, one of the things that we've been failing to do in the U.S is to, to fulfill our promise of educating our population and propelling them into a more prosperous future because our our uh, admittance classes across the universities in the U.S. over the last 20 years have been declining because of cost, because of complexity, because of availability. And what he was saying is by shifting to online and or special freshman and, and sophomore classes are usually one directional. It's just lecturing. So he's like, you know, it doesn't really hurt when you lose that type of in-classroom experience between the student and the teacher. It's most just one-way lecturing. That can happen virtually. And by doing this virtually, we can allow these these students to take the classes during the time of day when it best suits them. They can work around this. But he's like, we can also double and triple our admittance classes and get back to like the early 80s in terms of the number of people we were educating. So it keep there's all these things that are kind of really helpful early indicators that we could have a shift here and really double down in terms of how we're inspiring motivating and educating a younger generation of decision makers so hopeful stuff um but this has been such a fascinating conversation as usual peter and um i'm just really sad that this is, we're almost done we only have two more weeks of this
1: i know it's hard to to grasp but there we are time uh I was about to say something profound about time, but I don't know what it is. So it.
0: <laughs> well, in this case, it—I guess it's—it's it's just that we're almost out of it, and uh, as usual, right? It's always the ticking—the ticking clock yeah, that yeah. minds. Thanks again no, for a great, great conversation, so Peter. Yeah,
1: absolute pleasure. I Really enjoyed it, and I look forward to next week's. Keep well, Seth.
0: Thanks, Peter. You too. Well, that's a wrap on round twelve. We've got just two more rounds of weekly insights to go, but we'll have more content in this podcast stream as we close out the project. So stay tuned. If you'd like to hear what we distilled in previous rounds or our summary of insights at the midpoint of the project, check out the project page or podcast stream links are in the episode notes on behalf of the resilient shift. This is Seth Schultz. Thanks again for joining us and see you next week.